Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting. And you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Where are you going to put your hands? No good. Don't touch your tie. Look at me. Okay, I ask you a question. You have to think of the answer. Where do you look? No good. You look down, they know you're lying. And up, they know you don't know the truth. Don't use seven words when four will do. Don't shift your weight. Look always at your mark, but don't stare. Be specific, but not memorable. Be funny, but don't make him laugh. He's got to like you and then forget you the moment you left his side. And for God's sake, whatever you do, don't under any circumstances. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Ocean's Eleven. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from the middle of the fucking desert. How does this happen two weeks in a row? Oh, fuck, dude. I don't know. My name is Don, and to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. You scared? (laughs) You suicidal? Only in the morning. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Ten ought to do it, don't you think? You think we need one more? You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. And speaking of one more tonight, I am happy to welcome our special guest. This is Ivy. I have a question. Say we get into the cage, and through the security doors there, and down the elevator we can't move, and past the guards with the guns, and into the vault we can't open... Without being seen by the cameras. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, well, say we do all that. Uh, We're just supposed to walk out of there with $150 million of cash on us without getting stopped? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Tonight, we are talking about Ocean's Eleven, and this movie comes to us because Ivy... Uh, was kind enough to submit it to us and said that she would want to come on and talk about it. So here she is. Uh, Ivy, why Ocean's Eleven? Yeah, so Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie. Um, I just feel like this movie in particular scratches my brain in like the exact right spot. Like it just, it's so satisfying. Um, It gives me kind of the same vibe as like the John Wick movie, the first one, where everything goes according to plan. There's great cheesy music. There's always like the love interest on the side. I feel like it's just hitting all the solid points of a good cheesy action movie but one that like the conflict is overcome very easily interesting interesting yeah so let's talk a little bit about heist movies everybody likes a good heist movie does anybody have a heist movie that they enjoy besides oceans 11 now when you say everybody you mean everybody at this table i think everybody period i mean there's there's some really really good heist movies you have you have uh, Baby Driver. You have The Usual Suspects, Inside Man, Thomas Crown Affair, Hell or High Water. The Italian Job. The Italian Job, absolutely. Now You See Me. Now You See Me, Now You Don't. 
Ronin, Reservoir Dogs. Would you consider Mission Impossible a Ant Man? Could be. Uh, the first one is. Could be. The f- yeah, the first one definitely is. And yeah. there was a heist movie we reviewed a lot too long ago. Hell or High Water. He already said that. Heat. God damn it. Yep. Yeah. Fish Absolutely. called Wanda. Absolutely. To answer your question, Professor, I I've enjoyed all of those films. You know what I mean? Uh, ones that really stand out, though, is Baby Driver. Baby Driver is such a fun watch. I am honestly not typically a fan of heist crew movies. Did you enjoy watching any of those movies that have just been mentioned? A couple of them. In fact, uh, I will have further information in my review later, but of those movies, I would put Ocean's Eleven at the top. as probably my favorite of all the heist movies. But for specific reasons, I am not a huge fan of heist crew movies. And you'll share those specific reasons later? I will during my review. That way you can't cut me off and tell me how wrong I am. Well, I can do that when you're done. You know that, right? You're not safe. Oh, that's right. But now I'm curious because I feel like a heist movie has the perfect formula for like a really good plot that ends really satisfyingly. So are you just saying that you don't like movies with a good story? No, um... Not to go into too much detail. Oh, fuck it. Go into detail. But heist movies are dependent. Heist and crew movies are usually dependent on flashbacks for a vital parts of the stories. And so they keep flashing back. just context. But they can fix anything that goes wrong in the movie or any problems or anything that is unattainable with a simple little flashback. So, for example, if I was going to take Dawn out of the picture, I might come in here before he sits down in his chair and tie a bomb to his chair. But Don now flashes back to show he suspected I was going to take him out. So he came in and he rewired my chair with the bomb instead of his chair. But I knew Don saw me do that. So then I flash back to show that I snuck in after him and then rewired Don's chair. It's okay, just, well, that sounds like a poorly made heist movie. Well, I'm just saying that's how I feel a lot of these heist movies are is that they're dependent. Now, Ocean's Eleven isn't as dependent on the flashback because you catch during the actual thing. You can hear the voices and the people. Okay, well, so then it works. Well, then I got to know what that formula, what formula you just laid out. I need to know what movie that is then. Uh, just now you see me. Okay. That seemed like they did the whole Okay, movie. well, hang on. Let and me then, let me let me stop you right there. Now you see me is one of the worst fucking movies you could ever. So I don't know why you would associate that movie to the heist genre, which only tells me that maybe you haven't seen a lot of heist movies and that that's Thomas fine. Crown Affair, I feel like it's kind of the same way. But we've reviewed a bunch of heist movies yeah. here. You liked Heat? I I liked Heat. I'm saying not I'm not saying I'm not oh, right no in general. I, see, I don't think they are. I think you're basing everything off of now you see me, and now you see me was fucking horrible. Yeah. So it was I'm a just, dumb story. So you asked me what is a good example of a bad heist movie. That's a good example. Well, no, I wanted an example of what that formula was, and that's what you gave me. I wouldn't even put now you see me in any realm, anywhere close to heat, hell or high well, water, fish call Wanda, any of that shit. I would also honestly say uh, I feel like, and you could disagree with me, uh, the Ocean thir- or 12 and 13, not as good as Ocean's 11. They got more dependent on the flashbacks as they go on. Well, I think that's a whole different argument for a whole different podcast. Um, I will just say that I enjoy all three immensely. One and three, pretty fucking close in my book. Mm-hmm. Two, I think is very underappreciated. And I think, okay, yeah, the plot has problems, but whatever. The chemistry more than makes up for it, but... Again, we'll get into that later. But, yeah, Oceans is probably the best of the three. 
Released on December 7, 2001, Ocean's Eleven was directed by Steven Soderbergh. Screenplay by Ted Griffin. Based on Ocean's Eleven by Harry Brown, Charles Ledger, George Clayton Johnson, and Jack Golden Russell. And it stars George Clooney, Matt Damon, Andy Garcia, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Elliot Gould, Bernie Mac, Carl Reiner, and a bunch of other thieves. How'd this movie do, Don? <laughs> well, thank you for asking, Ivy. Uh, it was made for $85 million and it brought in $450 million. Interesting thing uh, for the box office for that year. It came in at number 11. Oh, serendipitous. $151 million. What was number one that year? Harry Potter. Oh, that's a shocker. The boy who lived. So that was more popular than George Clooney that year. By $150 million. That was more popular than nine other films that also didn't have George Clooney in it, too. So Now ask me which movie I've seen more. Dude, we don't have to ask. We know. So this movie is directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it is actually, I guess, a quasi-remake of the 1960 Rat Pack Ocean's Eleven. Have any of you seen that film? No. Uh-uh. I did some reading up on it, but I have not seen it. Oh, I've seen it. I guess there's only one name that is the same. Yeah, it's the, it's the only thing that connects it. Yeah. Um, th- that and the fact that uh, in the original, they steal from five casinos in a night. But and they steal from the uh, the cashiers. They don't steal from the vaults. Right. right. And Danny Ocean is the only name they reuse. Yep. So. It also, you were right, because you had mentioned when we were talking about it before, it doesn't have the most happiest of endings. The original? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How's the original end? Plane crash, everybody dies. Mm. Kind of close. Kind of close. You you should watch it. Yeah. It's an hour and a half, right? I mean, or an hour 40, whatever that, it is. That's a pretty and it's old, hot ending. And it's old uh, fucking Rat Pack, right? Yeah, and, and that's a curious thing to point out, because even though they're nothing alike, they are alike in essence, that they are both really swinging stylish movies. Cool movies. Yes. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. Everybody is Everyone's just... in tuxes. Rusty, effortlessly cool, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. And so, yeah, with the original Rat Pack, effortlessly cool. Absolutely. Did you know the director originally wanted to film this in black and white? Yeah, yeah. And then the studio said, well, then you better cut the budget because filming it in black and white would have cost way more money. I can't imagine it would have done as well in black and white. What do you think? I think it would have done just fine. You think so? The material and everything is, the it writing. holds up. The writing. Oh, the writing is so solid. Mm-hmm. So solid. And, and the character development. Yeah. I and see it only appealing to a certain crowd in the beginning, but after like a few people had seen it and it gained more popularity than it would have gone out. But maybe like the first opening weekend, it wouldn't have done as well. Oh, I don't know. Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Matt Damon. I mean, at that time. They were all on their A game at this time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Julia Roberts, she's got an Oscar in her hand, and she just got done with Notting Hill. Also the highest paid actress at the time. Right. And Matt Damon, he, you know, he just got done with talented Mr. Ripley, and he is a rising star at this point. And Brad Pitt, he was, man, he was freaking spy games, uh, snatch, fight club. He, he was, you know, this is a movie star movie. Right. Oh, absolutely. These guys are... The Avengers of heist movies. 
I was going to say, speaking of a movie where, like, the second time you watch it, you catch all the things, that's like Fight Club, too. So Brad Pitt must have been doing a lot of movies like that. Was no. that just a theme of the time? Maybe. Like I, it, era it, of movies? It all depends on the storyteller and the story that they're trying to tell you. You know, David Fincher was very specific about what he was doing with Fight Club at the time. I personally am not a fan of Fight Club, but that's just my own gig. But I can I see what you're saying. One thing I appreciate about this movie is that the entire cast, so that they could work together, took a lot less than their usual salaries. So yeah, so just to you know make a movie like this, I'm glad that they could all come together and do something like that. Yeah, and, and since we're into the cast, um, Don Cheadle goes uncredited. Yes, he does. Why is Fine. that? He goes uncredited because he is in a. There was a dispute about what he was allowed to put his name on at the time. He was working on another project. I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I, he he wanted he wanted to be on the top bill with Clooney and right. Pitt and all mm-hmm. them. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and they said no, and so he said, "Don't put me in then." Yeah, so he and then but it does so well that in the second one he does get billed and his he gets character paid was and, popular. Yeah. Yeah, even though he gets credited for uh, one of the worst Cockney accents. Yeah, he even admits uh-huh. that. He, yeah. he hated his performance in this movie with that accent. But when it came time for the second and the third movie, they insisted he keep that same accent. Yeah, they didn't want to change it. No. Yeah, the uh, Soderbergh and company. I thought it was just kind of a shtick. Yeah, kind of was. itself. Yeah. I think it would have been funny if later on in the movies they had revealed he had been faking it the whole time. Well, let's not get crazy. The acrobat guy, uh, Shelbo Quinn. Yeah. Do you know how they found him? How? Basically the same way that they portray it in the movie. They went to the show, a show, they saw him rehearsing, and decided they wanted to use him for the movie. He had never done any movies or productions before like that. Yeah. yeah this, this was his first English-speaking role, and his first English word was, where the fuck you been? Mm-hmm. So. And he pretty much did... Almost no acting after this, and he went back to doing acrobatic stuff again. Yeah, well, he, until he, twelve and thirteen came out. He, he and talked, eight, he's he, an eight. He talked about being a stunt man, but I guess that didn't work out. Do either of you guys know what a grease man is? Someone who can fit into tight spaces. A grease man is a guy that can get you in. <laughs> yeah, he can. Right, because he's he's in the vault. Right. So yeah, he's the guy that can get you in. He's also a grease man. Is also. A guy that can get things done smoothly. Hence the grease, maybe? Yeah, grease, yeah. grease man. Yeah. <laughs> we run in different circle. Do you know yeah. what the best thing I found out about this movie was? What's that, buddy? That in Japan, they adapted the movie into a musical. Oh, oh for fuck's sake. Actually, I do have one thing to point out. The casting was a choice for the Mormon brothers. They do not look related. <laughs> But I like I could not just like sit there and think about that. I was like, the, there are literally two Affleck brothers that are both famous and both like actors. Why couldn't they get the two of them instead of choosing these two men who do not look alike? Well, Unless first of part of the joke. First of all, Ben Affleck would have never been uh, in a bit part in two thousand one. No way. He's too busy making fucking Daredevil. Thanks, Ben. Uh, but I thought the Malloy twins, Casey Affleck and Scott Con fucking priceless they're two of my favorite characters absolutely that's you and me oh yeah you're like a little girl do you know who (laughs) they originally wanted for those parts uh i had heard but who is it 
Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson. That's right. But they were, uh, oddly enough, they were out doing the Royal Tenenbaums, as was some other people that they wanted to be in Ocean's Eleven. Bill Murray? Bill Murray was one of them. He was supposed to be a lounge singer in the movie. Yeah, but he was doing Tenenbaums. And there was someone else, but I can't can't remember. Do you know who they originally wanted for Danny Ocean? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis would have been an interesting choice. Well, that's why he's in the second one. Mm -hmm. So. Plain Bruce Willis. Instead, we get prime Bachelor era George Clooney. Oh, and sure, and he looks like a silver fox in this movie. Fuck yeah, he does. This role, I think, was made for Clooney. And looking back on it now, if we sat around and said, "Ah, right, let's remake Ocean's Eleven or recast Ocean's Eleven, Each you can't. Eleven. I don't think you recast any of them. Any of them, not even your Malloy twins. I would volunteer Idris Elba. <laughs> For Danny Ocean. I could see that. He's suave, though. He gives, like, James Bond energy as well. That's a good fucking solid choice, Ivy. Mm -hmm. That's good. I like that. However, still George. Following his release from prison, Danny Ocean violates his parole in which he is to stay in New Jersey by traveling to Los Angeles to meet his friend and partner in crime, Rusty Ryan, to propose a heist. The two go to Las Vegas to pitch the plan to wealthy friend and former casino owner, Ruben Tishkoff. The plan consists of simultaneously robbing the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand Casinos. Ruben's familiarity with casino security makes him very reluctant to get involved. But when he starts to think of it as a good way to get back at his rival, Terry Benedict, who owns all three casinos, he agrees to finance the operation. The three men know that the NGC require casinos to have enough cash on hand to cover all their patrons' bets, and they predict that on the night of a highly anticipated boxing match, the Bellagio Vault will contain more than $150 million. So what do you think of the way this movie started with kind of the opening of the parole hearing? Oh, I loved it. I have so much love for that scene. When I was making notes for this, just like I love that great like shtick that they do in movies where you just have the character say something like when they ask like, oh, Mr. Ocean, what will you do like on your parole? What do you think you would do if you were let out? And it just kind of zooms in and he's smirking a little bit. And then like the mischievous music starts to play. And then you know that something exciting is about to happen. That is one of my favorite favorite like movie montage things of all time that's awesome and you're so right when that music starts and he and he gives that george clooney look you're just like okay i'm in and this movie doesn't fucking let up or let you down you get the brief shot outside and then the next shot him coming up the escalator freaking movie gold right there i gotta ask your opinion with or without the goatee i'm gonna say without without when he comes up the escalator Ice wound. He looks like a million bucks. Dapper Dan? I think he looks good clean shaven. I like the scruffy look too, but for the scene of him going up into the casino, you know, with like changing into like his old self, I think it's good without the goatee. And this is where we meet Frank Catton, our first, our first stop on gathering Ocean's Eleven. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. My name is Ramon, as you can clearly see on my name tag. The great Bernie Mac. Oh, my Icon. God. Icon. He was perfect for this. Mm -hmm. I grew up watching the Bernie Mac show. I was so excited to see him in this movie. Yeah, and Danny asks Frank if he's seen Rusty, and uh, Frank just gives him a quick, last I heard, he was teaching movie stars how to play poker. And then we do that transition to fucking Rusty. 
Brad Pitt. There's good transitions in this movie. Oh. I agree. And this leads us to probably my second favorite scene of this film. This is an awesome scene. This scene makes me fucking laugh every single time. We see Rusty teaching a bunch of WB players poker. You know what I mean? Uh, you got that Joshua Jackson and some other cats that I recognize, but I couldn't tell you who they were. Topher Grace. And Topher Grace. The, like, the girl from Charmed. Yeah, okay, that's where she was from, Charmed. But just Rusty and Topher walking in, and he's telling them, you know, I was talking to my manager, Bernie. What we're doing is considered, you know, research, but can I pay you by check? <laughs> the- the one thing I do like with the dialogue in this movie is there's several scenes that work where one person says something and there's no response, but you don't need the response. Oh. I love Brad Pitt in the scene just giving the look. He's like, okay. Or, or we'll, we'll stick with cash. And then it's the look after that, like, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. So good. So good. I do have one grievance about when he's teaching them playing poker. He calls out one of them for having six cards. Yeah. Why wouldn't he have noticed that when the cards were dealt? If he's teaching them how to play, wouldn't he have noticed right away someone got misdealt? Now, maybe he didn't get misdealt. Maybe there was a, a shuffle on the couple of cards on the table. I That's mean, what I thought. There's a lot of shenanigans going on over there. And before, be I let you, before I let you badmouth Rusty Ryan, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say this. Shane, you got six cards. You can't have six cards in a five-card game. <laughs> he's putting that back on Shane. Why does Shane? Did Shane not discard? Probably not. The dealer was bad too. They had to keep giving him pointers. Josh, Josh, left, left. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love the vibe too. Brad Pitt's good at portraying, you know, a character who was bored with his life. You look bored. Um, you can just sense it in him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when he's sitting at the bar, just like looking at like the girls in the window, <laughs> he really looks like he does not want to be there. And and he's got to take a break, right? Because he can he can only put up with these guys for so much. So he's sitting at the bar. I do like that line. What was he said first to the longest night of my life? And it's like, what? I'm running away with your wife. Okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice the transition on how we get Rusty out to the bar? He's in the room. And he takes his whiskey glass and he starts drinking. And then he's finishing the drink at the bar. That's the transition. Right. Love that transition. Is this so good. what one of maybe two scenes where Rusty's not eating in the movie? You know why they have a meeting so much? I think he talked to someone about how like they were so busy, you know, moving around so much, thinking about all their heists that they wouldn't have time to sit down and eat. That's just exactly eat correct. On the, mm -hmm. Eat on the way. Yeah. And then it just kind of turned into a thing. One line that I like in this is... When uh, Danny Ocean's talking to them and talk and mentions, was it hard to transition from TV to movies? Oh my God, so funny! He's asking to or no, uh, no, he's asking Topher Grace. Topher, yeah. Although he had just done it, and so Danny now joins the game. They start playing poker, and the the Teen Beat gang start asking him, you know, what are you doing? He says, I just got out of prison, and and Clooney and Pitt can have this dialogue or this conversation through these questions and it catches us up right away. And the awesome thing with this scene is Clooney's little micro smiles that he gives on one side of his cheek throughout the whole betting process. Yeah. Just him, so good. Him and Brad Pitt are really good at like the soft smirk in these movies. 
but for different reasons. Like George Clooney will do it to kind of fake out people like Terry Benedict or Brad Pitt, but then Brad Pitt will just do a little smirk to like flirt with someone or to like scoff at someone because he knows he's bested them. And it only gets better throughout the series. And ultimately, I think that they end up conning. I, that, I think that that was a con that the both of them pulled. Do you think it's set up or do you think it just showed that Danny was kind of like one step ahead? He knew that he would get called out on a bluff. So he was portraying everything that would have made him advise he's bluffing. No, I think Rusty and Danny were doing what Rusty and Danny do. Exactly. And I think at some exactly. point, as soon as they saw each other, as soon as uh, Rusty walks in and he's sitting there, Rusty, I'm sure, is thinking, oh, good, now we can take all these kids' money and I don't have to feel bad about it. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought that's going what into I thought it. Because that's who they are. Because then we cut to them at that restaurant. And even this dialogue, I fucking love it. And you were saying something about their their smiles and how it conveys and all that. When uh, Clooney says, uh, when was the last time you were in Vegas? And Brad Pitt goes, you want to rob a casino? And all George has to do is throw up his three fingers. And Brad Pitt's reaction knows he's out of his fucking mind. And right? that's what's so good about this writing is because these two characters going back and forth, sometimes they know they know each other so well, sometimes that they finish each, each other's sentences or they don't say anything at all or they end up having the the other person already understanding what was about ready to be said. And Rusty didn't really take that much convincing. You know what I mean? He was in hundred yeah. percent right back into their old friendly ways. Yeah. So they make a trip to see Ruben, the wonderful Elliot Gould. What'd you guys think of this bit? Totally awesome. Do you know what the three of them have in common? They're all Jewish. They all have livers. They've all appeared on episodes of friends. Oh, yeah. George Clooney was on Friends. Yeah, he him, and Noah Wiley uh, date Monica and Phoebe. No, is it Monica and Rachel? I think it was Monica and Rachel. It's Monica and Rachel. And this is then that's the episode when Chandler kind of admits that he likes Monica and he, does, she, he doesn't want her to go out with George Clooney. And why the fuck do I know that? I why don't would Monica know. choose Chandler over George Clooney? Good question, Ivy. Especially Good since fucking question. He's a doctor. Didn't see this movie. Obviously, oh, he is the doctor. Okay, I yeah. remember now. Yeah. So they go to Ruben. They tell him their idea, and Ruben's like, "You're fucking nuts." And they say, "Okay, whatever." And I love that bit of dialogue too. What do you think of the flashbacks of him talking about the different robberies? <laughs> oh, it's never been done. It's been tried. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and the, each bit of the music represents. Uh, the time period, mm -hmm. right? I guess I just wanted to comment too. I really like how they designed Ruben's character, especially his costume design, because I feel like it shows like a man with so much money. He's just wearing like gaudy outfits and jewelry all the time. And I really like when they meet him um, for lunch next to his pool and like, you know, he has his big hairy chest and like <laughs> his silk robes and his like big gold rings and the gold necklace. And I saw a piece of trivia that said that the, I think it was a costume designer. Um, he based Ruben's look off of his Turkish grandfather. That's awesome. Yeah. I also read the cigar was Elliot Gould's idea. Yeah. I totally dug when he, which, which ones were you planning to rob anyway? And then they mentioned them and that very distinctly loud clank of his fork on the plate. Like what the fuck? Totally. Those right? are Terry Benedict's casinos. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, they are. 
You're out of your goddamn mind. <laughs> and then the music kicks oh in God. again. And once that music You got to have in, a crew crazy as you guys. What do you got in mind? Those transitions are so good. Danny and Rusty recruit eight former colleagues and criminal specialists. Conman, Frank Catton, and Saul Bloom, auto specialists Virgil and Turk Malloy, explosives expert Basher Tarr, electronic surveillance technician Livingston Dell, acrobat the amazing Yen, and pickpocket Linus Caldwell. Several team members carry out reconnaissance at the Bellagio to learn as much as possible about the security, the routines, the behaviors of the casino staff, and the building itself. Other members create a precise replica of the vault, which is built in order to practice maneuvering through its formidable security systems. During the planning phase, the team discovers that Danny's ex-wife Tess is Benedict's girlfriend. Rusty urges Danny to give up on the plan, believing Danny is incapable of sound judgment while Tess is involved, but Danny refuses. On the night of the fight, the plan is put into motion. Danny shows up at the Bellagio purposely to be seen by Benedict, who, as predicted, locks him in a storeroom with Bruiser, a bouncer. However, Bruiser is on Danny's payroll and allows him to access the vent system and join his team as they seize the vault, coinciding with activities of their other team members in and around the casino. So this montage that begins, it's one of my more preferred montages. There's several throughout the movie, but I really like the montage of everybody being gathered up. Who's first on the list? Well, Frank sees in. Frank has contracted a case of bronchitis and when they're doing the transfer do you notice bernie mac's face oh totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> little puppy dog eyes yeah it goes to frank and then it goes to dun, dun, dun. it goes to the the malloy brothers oh my gosh you're such a little girl the funny thing is is i think i would be the guy driving the remote and you'd be the one who runs over my truck oh probably how can that not make everybody laugh every time when that little Thing gets smashed, followed up by that laugh. And it's Scott Kahn's laugh. Exactly. Yes. But the oh funny my God, thing so is, good. it makes people laugh, but people like me are like, oh, that was an awesome remote control truck. Well, that's exactly what Casey Affleck was thinking. Uh, did you have a favorite of the recruitment? Well, then after... Um, then we get Livingston. Which it, which is a great bit because uh, I love how they the, the, he's in a surveillance van and they call him Radio Shack. And, and then it cuts to Clooney and Pitt having their dialogue and then they're talking about another position. And whilst all of this is going on, Livingston's getting tangled up in a dog leash just to kind of show the character he is. But it's in the back and Soderbergh does such a good job of just framing things that he's telling two different things right now. And that that's not the only time that that happens. There's there's an overlay that pulls us from one scene to a different scene by having the dialogue start for the next scene in the previous scene. And sure. I totally dug what we get out of Livingston because Livingston, he is the antithesis of what everybody else is. He is so not cool. And then we meet Basher. I think that's my favorite of all of them. Oh, it's so good. So good. And uh, just he's, he's going to rob a bank or rob a vault. He breaks in. The alarm goes off. You toss us. I really like it when they have like someone casted for an explosives guy and he also just has like a really fiery personality. It yeah. reminds me of the Penguins of Madagascar. Like Rico is just as unhinged and he always wants to blow things up. I just think it pairs together really well. What the fuck is Penguins of Madagascar? From the Madagascar movie. I know, I was just kidding. 
Okay. He doesn't do animated. I'm cultured, all right? Oh, is that what that is? Cultured? Penguins? Yes. Good, good to know. What I like about this one is, you know, Pitt walks up oh, as so Basher's good. getting arrested, pretends he's a cop. How fast can you put some together with what I just slipped you? And then uh, when Basher says, is Danny about? Be good to work with proper villains again. I Such wanna, a great line. I want to know when Danny and Rusty are talking and he mentions that Basher might be a little difficult. Availability? The availability. Was it because he knew that he was already in trouble or was it because he knew he was on another job? That's uh, probably that he was on another job. It just worked out that way. And and that the bureaucratic ATF guy, just so good, that character that Pitt plays. And then from there, we move on to Yen. Clooney's not really impressed. He's like, who else is on the list? He is the list. And he goes, <laughs> I don't know. I don't see what's so hard about. And then Yen does the flip and... We got a grease man. We got a grease man. They have to go get Saul, right? Uh, and Clooney's like, we need Saul. There's no question about it. And Rusty's like, he got out of the game a year ago. Saul is an important part of the movie for us, the audience, because Saul is probably the one that the audience is going to relate to the most because he has these doubts that gives the audience, is he okay? Like, is maybe this isn't going to work out. Maybe Saul can't do this. I have to admit, the first time I watched it, uh, Saul's character, the acting that he's doing, the health things, I believed he really was the weakest link and that he was having some real issues. Which, in fact, he was an integral part yeah. of this plan. So, I, so. I, that's one of the parts of the con that I really appreciated. Yeah. Um, the other thing I love about Carl Reiner is, I guess, in between takes... Uh, the other cast were just infatuated with listening to stories from him. Well, how could you not be? I mean, that probably would be worth its weight in gold to sit around and listen to Carl Reiner talk about movies he's been on and just his life. 50 years. Come on. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's been in some good shit. And so Saul makes 10. 10 ought to do it. You think we need one more? You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. And then we cut to... Linus. Linus. With another good transition. What did you guys think of the recruitment of Linus? Uh, I really dug that on several levels. It was really important that we have the pickpocketing happen where we get that little stutter frame happen because it's shown, revealed to us a second time when Danny walks by Linus. So therefore, we now see that, oh, Danny just did something there to Linus. Right. And he's kind of... I always think that's the coolest thing. Uh, Linus sitting there, gets the guy, and then we cut to Clooney, and he's watching, right? Because he's little smile. He's scoping out, like, oh, it's not not bad. And then he, just being the old pro he that he is, does the same thing to Linus. I was you know going to say, I feel like this scene, too, just affirms for me that Danny really is good at what he does. Because I guess this kind of goes to John's point, where we're just supposed to believe a lot of the things that are handed to us in heist movies. So we just have to believe. We're just dropped into the story where we know that Danny's a mastermind. But it's at this point that we actually see him like going back to his old pickpocketing ways. So far, we've literally only seen him organize things and not actually play a part in like the plan. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. It's a definitely a good point to show his skills and that, you know, he could play almost all of these parts. Yeah. Danny wins people over. I mean, that is re repeatedly shown 
throughout the movie that he has won people over. And right here, here he is winning Linus over. And I love that last little bit when he picks up, you know, the, the camera goes down where, where his hand is now on the table and not on the ticket. Right. Right. Well, he lifts his arm up, so it's really not that yeah. hard for Linus to take the fucking I ticket. I also caught that. Yeah. But it, but the way he looks shocked and he looks up, you're like, oh, okay. Would you have been in when he said, you're in or out, decide now? George Clooney asks me if I'm in or out right now. In. What about you? If that's what I do for a living, yeah, then I go. Oh, see, he's with the ifs. I just said, yes, I'm in. I don't fucking care. I'll go. George I Clooney asked me to do too. anything. Yeah, see, I mean, the same way. I mean, Linus didn't really have much to lose. It sounds like his parents are like big high rollers anyway. He was probably looking for something more exciting than just pickpocketing. I felt that Linus was waiting for an opportunity like this to make a name for himself because Ocean even says they'll be talking about you after this. Right. Speaking of which, they all show up at Ruben's house. Did you notice who was the only one who wasn't? I think there's like one or two people that was not with that group who was standing behind Ruben. It, there was Frank, and then yeah. there was Danny and Rusty. Yeah, I think Bernie Mac was the only one who was cooler not with the group. Uh, uh, Frank was already there. He's working there. He's in Vegas. All those other guys weren't oh. in Vegas. I'm shocked to have to point That's that out point. to you. <laughs> you. You know what's amazing? At this point of the movie, we're only 30 minutes into the movie, and moving forward, three quarters of the movie is all about the heist. Yeah. Wasn't Yen also working in Vegas already? No, he's in the... San Diego. He was in oh, San Diego. Was I thought it was yeah. a Vegas show that he went to. No. So at Ruben's house, uh, Danny lays out the plan, and obviously everyone's in, and this brings us to one of the best montages ever, right? Because he starts saying, step one, you know, and we go through the steps. The jazzy and, music starts. Yep, and everything has such a feel, and it's so much fun. You know, they're building a replica of the vault. They're getting a van. They're getting, they're getting to know all of their marks. You know, Bernie Mac sitting there writing down that Charmaine works at the Crazy Horse. Um, I love that moment because what it could be, you're just sitting there watching somebody have a conversation. Instead, we start in on his badge, and then the camera pulls back, and then we have a side shot of. Bernie Mac, and he is slowly zooming, getting slowly zoomed into on his ear, meaning that he is listening closely. And then we zoom down onto a close-up of the crossword. Yeah. So out of all of this uh, getting ready and preparing, was there something that jumped out to you like, oh, that was fucking awesome? I mean, besides all of it? Well, one thing that I read about that I didn't know ahead of time was that scene with Bernie Mac at the car salesman. Do you know what was significant about that scene? Please lay it on me. The fact that he squeezes his hand, the same thing happens to Ledoux in another movie, in the movie Casino. He gets his hand squeezed like that, so it was a call-out to the movie Casino. Oh, look at Soderbergh. So in this montage, did any of you have one that you enjoyed watching? I think my favorite one, now that I think about it, was the fight over Balloon Boy. (laughs) Yeah, that's an awesome I don't have one. time for that's you, you one. circus animals. He's a balloon boy. A balloon boy. He launches balloons. So good. I love that one. That one also has a great transition because I love when they zoom into the balloons, covering up the security camera and then zooming out. Um, but I think my favorite part is Keep when, um, what's his face? Who's the a tech guy? Livingston. Livingston. When Livingston is like walking down the hallway, sweating profusely, and they even add in like his squeaky shoes. 
it is ridiculously funny and i just love the little attention to detail and then like even with the map kind of smudged on his forehead when he wipes his forehead it's and, perfect and Clooney and pitt's look when he gets locked lost they're like he's standing there looking uh-oh. down at his hand <laughs> and then he goes to the right then he goes to the left yeah your transition you talk about with the balloons that's where we have rusty picking up the badges we you know bring it back in an hour and then we see the balloons in the car and then we zoom in on the balloons and then we zoom out of the balloons. We're in the casino. Tell your mom. I said, hi, <laughs> I like that. Why bother you? She'll be on stage in five minutes. minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> Tell her yourself. She'll be on. And then the look he gives like, <laughs> should I? No, I can't. I don't get time. <laughs> but yeah, I totally dug the, the Livingston bit as well. And then we see the vault being replicated. It's like, why are they replicating a vault? Putting all the chips in there. I, uh, you know, it's not until the end of the movie that it's revealed why we need that. Right. And then we get to uh, Matt Damon, who has been tasked with watching Benedict. So in the meantime, we're getting to know all about Benedict as well. And we know what kind of person he is. We know his schedule. And uh, they do a really good job of showing that to us. And then we are introduced to Julia Roberts. Uh, Julia Roberts didn't wear her high heels because she was afraid of walking down that spiral case with them. Tess is with Benedict now. She's too tall for him. (laughs) Well done. And then we get a little montage between Terry and Tess. Right. And it kind of, and it shows us, you know, she is the curator at the, uh, at the art museum and Terry goes in and they kind of have this moment and you like it. I liked it. You like it. That was a gallery within the casino, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Someone online brought up a great point that I, I think I kind of agree with, is that how did Tess get this job? I mean, maybe it's because she's dating Benedict, but the fact that she would have been flagged instantly as having a connection to an art thief, that she was married to a guy who's in jail for stealing art, she would probably never be able to get a job at like a casino or anywhere like that. All right, let me ask you this. Who cares? No, 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 no. Why do you watch movies? Why do you do it? You're just wasting your time if you're just going to try and make sense of shit like this. I feel like, I mean, I agree with you. But also, (laughs) if we were to give some kind of explanation, the sense that I got was that Tess and Danny were together and she didn't know fully how much he was stealing. So I kind of felt like she was his in to stealing the art. And then when he got caught, they got divorced. So if she was willing to show someone that she cut ties with her art thief ex-husband well, you, and that he used her to get to the art pieces maybe and she she's not with him anymore, him. yeah, and he's in jail, she's not a threat. Well, you both way overthought that more than also, I could Terry ever Benedict think of. Also, Terry Benedict wanted to bone her, so he just hired her. It's fucking Julia Roberts. Together. I appreciate Ivy's response to that. Thank you for that. You're welcome. See? Yeah, it's Julia Roberts. She's hot. Also, Andy Garcia is definitely not in her league. And he's, he's a dick. Too short. Yeah, he's so rude. It infuriated me when he wouldn't kiss her in his own casino. Because somebody's always watching. Who cares? Does he have cameras in his room? I mean, what's going on? I'm going to go ahead and say yeah. Yeah, he's probably watching himself. I just, well, I felt like a test. Tess is with Benedict now? I, know, I, I felt at this point... The introduction of Julia Roberts, she's got a really bad taste in men. The first guy that she marries <laughs> is an art thief who probably used her to steal art, just like you were saying, Ivy. Second guy is a total dick and kind of emotionally abusive to her. She must be addicted to the power. 
Yeah, I don't know. Okay, well, uh, to your theories, who does she end up with? Bad choice. Is it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's in my review later. Oh, well, okay. She goes, both ways. Why, why the heck they both suck. does she go back to the guy who she was so pissed off for lying and stealing and all that, that, oh, well, this guy was an asshole to me, so I'll go back to the first guy who was an asshole. Yeah, uh, but I think it's called love. Danny actually cared about her. Terry only wanted her to make himself look good. But why? There's did, your difference. Why did she leave Danny in the first place? She had uh, because he went to jail. She got he fed up with it. She said her. because he was a liar and a thief. Has anything changed? Well, he only lied about being a thief. Yeah, and he doesn't. And he doesn't do that anymore. Yeah, he's honest now. He's honest about being a thief. Yes. Yeah. So he's still a thief. So what? Yeah, but she, was she wasn't. She wasn't she mad was that he was a thief. She was mad that he's a liar. But he doesn't do that anymore. Okay. You're gonna have to change your review. We just poked all the holes in it. Love it. Yeah. So Terry ends up meeting Mister Zerga, which allows Danny to sit down and have a little oh, chat with Tess. So Danny and Tess have this interaction, and this is where Danny and Terry get to meet. And I like this bit too. Uh, there's always someone watching in my hotels and uh, Danny says, well, I should put the towels back then. No, you can keep the towels. The towels you can keep. <laughs> so good. And then, uh, Tess, Danny, oh, Terry, I, I, I love Danny. The, I love the way Terry says Danny. Yeah. And as they're saying goodbye. Who do you think got the best of each other? Would you think Danny kind of won there? Or I think Terry Danny won? always wins. Do you think so? I think Danny always wins. I definitely think he got way under the skin of Terry Benedict. Oh, 100%. And he knew that he was recently paroled. Right. He, he already had that information. Yeah, he knew. He doesn't let it show very well. One thing that bothers me too, though, is I feel like a lot of the competition just between Danny and um, Terry Benedict is really just Tess. Which also just kind of pains me as a woman because I feel like it treats her as an object again where they're just fighting over her. Just like either for her love or just for her as arm candy. And like Terry Benedict at one point when he sends Danny away, like even when he says the towels you can keep, he's just looking directly at Tess and like holding her hand. and Like kind of I have her. Yeah. yeah, like I have her, which again just objectifies her. So that's just something that bothers me, you know, like as a woman. But I get it for the movie. So it bothers you that Danny wants to fight for love? It bothers me that it feels like they're fighting over Tess and neither of them are respecting what she wants. Interesting. Because Danny keeps telling Terry, her, like, I get. Even even when she's like trying to like run away from him in the restaurant or like when he like grabs her, like there's so much grabbing and there's a lot of not listening to her and there's like this trope in just a lot of like early 2000s movies too where it's like you can eventually win over the woman as long as you just keep forcing yourself on her and it's not really listening to what she's saying it's not very consensual it's always like oh she doesn't really want him but then he finally like forces a kiss on her kind of like the movie say anything That is an interesting way of looking at it. Um, If one could say that if Tess was really that upset, she would have gotten away. There is something to be said about that. I think there's also something to be said about women who just kind of stiffen up and go along with things because they're afraid of other retaliation. 
And although I do think Tess like trusts Danny because they were married for a long time and they do end up together later, there's just a point where like she just stiffens and just kind of lets it happen. And it's kind of like, okay, let's just do anything to get this guy out of my hair. And but what is the outcome of all of that? He leaves and then he like continues to fight for her. And, I'm, then, I'm, I'm and saying, then the overall I'm not saying, outcome. I'm just saying that the ends don't really justify the means in this. Yeah, like I, think, I don't like how he treated her. I understand that they still stayed together and she still had feelings for him, but I don't like the way it went about. One thing that mm. I appreciate and I really believe even throughout this part of the movie is Danny says it's not that he's trying to win her back. It's just trying to make sure she's not with someone like Benedict. So I really believe at this point in the movie, you know, he would love to have her back. He'd love to win her heart back, but he's really just trying to save her from this guy that he knows is an awful person. Well, he even comes in there and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you this. I'm, I came for you. Mm -hmm. Right. And she says, no, I'm a Benedict. And then he kind of goes, well, you can't be. And they go into that whole, uh, uh, conversation. Right. So I think that, uh, Danny, wants Tess back but I think that he's gonna leave it up to her and if they can still 160 million dollars in the meantime so be it that's what this movie and use her in the process to do it but that's what this movie really everybody gets used about. bud everybody gets used this is a heist movie but ultimately Danny's reasoning for doing the heist is for Tess yeah which is why it's partly Tess not all about her well for Danny I think it might be how is he going to get to Tess without going through Terry Benedict? And why not make Benedict pay? Because he's got the team around him. He is this mastermind. He can get away with it, and he does. And then we learn in the second one how everything turns out. So, yeah. would Do you think he would have planned the same heist had Tess not been there, had not been dating Benedict? No. And so uh, now we get the bit where Rusty finds out and that Tess is involved and he goes and he has the same concerns as probably the audience at this point. You know, tell me this isn't about Tess or I'm walking. I'm walking off this job right now. And then Danny comes clean with him, you know, and Rusty accepts it. So the next stage of the heist is revealed and we get Yen doing that flip, right? And so he comes out of there. Holy moly. Can you imagine being in a space like that for a half hour? Ten cents says he shorts it. Twenty. Oh, it's this bit when Basher comes in, right? Because they're doing the yep. practice run yep. and they're yep. uh, walking through step by step what they have to do. And yeah, He's he, fucking, he fucking, he uh, fucking, Yen does the thing and then Basher comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I cannot imagine being in a space like that for a half hour. Folded like that. So then they realize that they have to go and get this EMP bomb thing. This pinch. Yeah, I, and I like it. I like how Basher describes it. It's like a nuclear bomb, but without all the fuss of death and destruction. And so uh, Danny, Linus, the Malloy twins, and Basher, and Yen, they go to California to pick up this pinch. Why did they even bring Linus if they were going to keep him in the van? Oh, I don't know. My question is, if I'm Linus and I'm getting all annoyed with him, why do I go in after them when it's already been... However long it's Three, been. Three, four minutes. But he could have just gone and stood outside the van. That's my point. That's what I'm saying. He could have just gone outside. Yeah. He's reckless and impulsive. It uh, goes along with his pickpocketing personality. Kind of like this maybe was a test by Danny for him. 
Oh, I don't know. Maybe, I guess. Well, he failed it, obviously, because look mm-hmm. what happens to Yen's hand. Uh, and then uh, they get back up to the suite. And Danny is red flagged. Do you know how this happened? Oh, come on. He's been chasing Benedict's girl. So, obviously, this is part of the plan, right? Danny has to, Danny has to be in the forefront or in the view of Benedict as an alibi, right? He needs an alibi. Right. And so um, you have to wonder, did Danny account for all of this? I guess he must have because we we have Bruiser. Right. And so Danny's presuming a lot. No kidding. Right. well, my question is the whole argument between Rusty and Danny about you're you're done, you're off the team. Uh, that was all pre-planned. Was that to test Linus and see if he was loyal? I don't know. Was that pre-planned? Because later on, when they're in the elevator shaft, you know, Linus run, or runs into the elevator with Danny, he goes, "You guys faked that whole thing, didn't you?" The, no, nothing is ever confirmed. I felt like yeah, it must have been because they needed both of them to do what they did down below. That's kind of where I'm wondering because... And you open up that briefcase and there's two devices. Yeah. That's true. So I was also just confused too because if Linus was supposed to replace Danny, like there's no way Danny could have played the same role and would have it would have like not been flagged again because Linus had to be undercover as the... NGC person, they would have recognized Danny right away. Right, yeah. Uh, Danny could have never played that role. Yeah, and then on top of that, it's like if Linus wasn't subbed in to do that part, then what was Linus for? To get the coats. Yeah, to pull the coats. Oh, just to watch people? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he was never supposed to be like a front man, like actually interacting with people. No, I think he was always always supposed to be the NGC guy. Yeah. Because they go through that whole... Look up, look down. You don't know. They're, he's getting into character there. Yeah. What he takes Danny's place in is triggering the vault. So getting down there, putting the explosives on, and triggering it. That's what okay. that's what they wanted him to do. What do you think of the interaction with Linus and Frank when they're calling him into question? And oh my god, this is one of the funniest scenes, and I I love it. I absolutely love it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I love when Linus says, you know, we have no problem with your people or something. No, he says, we uh, we at the NGC take the hiring of colored, and he closes his eye. <laughs> and then, but Bernie's Max, they said, uh, Matt Damon uh, on the commentary said that they had to, they filmed that scene for two days because Bernie Mac would not stop making them laugh. And I could just I imagine. His it. line you know about I mean? dancing on the table, he ad-libbed. Yep. And uh, might as well call it white jack. That's ad lib too. It's so good. But this brings me to another question. Okay. As much as I love this movie, and I fucking love this movie, don't get me fucking wrong. If Terry Benedict doesn't take the codes out of his briefcase and put them into his pocket, this plan never happens. That's a pretty big risk. But Linus knows he does that. He watched every little detail of every movement he does. Every day he does the exact same movements. Uh,. So that, I figured, I, I kind of bought into it. That's a stretch. I mean, I bought it because I'm already on the fucking ride. But it, for me, I mean, you you look at aggressive relationships. I look at, does this fucking envelope need to go into this fucking Well, let me ask pocket. you a question. Yeah. Who cares? Ha-ha. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. So, you know how long he's been waiting to do that? Yeah. It's good. It's too bad it's getting fucking cut. <laughs> so so during this time, we also see uh, Terry and Tess getting ready for the evening. 
and we get to hear Terry on the phone when he's doing that putting, right? Uh-huh. And he's just a total asshole on the phone, right? Yep. So, so cold. And then he goes in and Tess, you know, what are you thinking about? And you, she has that smile, but when her, when she looks down, that smile fades. And I feel like that it's as Ivy could be pointing out that she has resigned herself to the situation that she is in, that he's not necessarily a good guy. Well, and she's thinking about it, right? I mean, at least, I mean, Danny has her questioning Mm -hmm. things now Mm -hmm. and that's what Danny wanted to do. So it is game time. Yeah. And so they begin. So were the, were those real fighters that were popular at the time? Lennox Lewis and who else? Oh, white boy. And they had them actually come in to shoot this movie. Yep. There was 2,000 extras in that scene. Wow. And, and some cardboard uh, cutouts as well. At this time, we also see Saul having a little bit of difficulty, right? He, he, he slows on getting up, and then he has to get up a second time. Rusty comes in. Saul, it's time. What's really interesting, and I kind of maybe wish I had seen the first movie before this, someone actually does die of a heart attack so knowing that fact, I really would have thought Saul is going to die. That's the character they're going to kill off. Even though I didn't see the first one with Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, I thought Saul was going to die. Yeah. I didn't realize it was a bit. I mean, semi-bit. That's what I, that's what I took it as. I thought it was just going to be another bit. Mm-hmm. Well, you I mean, know. he had been saying that he had like ulcers and heartburn and the fact that he was the oldest one in the group. Yeah. I could and, see the stress cutting to him and having like cardiac arrest. And he convinces Benedict to put uh, his package his, into the vault. The briefcase into which the is vault. Which is the explosives. Right. It all right. lands on Saul. Right. Oh, well, yeah. Well, there's a bunch of moving pieces, right? And they all have to they all have to hit their mark at the exact same time for all of this to work. Kind of like a, a vault. Mm-hmm. Um, Basher is also preparing the pinch at this time. This, yep. again, is another one of my favorite scenes of this movie, was something that he ad-libbed in this part, which is him covering his crotch. Yes, turning and covering. And just that whole idea of, why wouldn't you cover your crotch? Yeah, the totally great ad-lib. And the theme music. The theme music, that uh, it starts right here as well. So they get ready to cut the power. Clooney is in with Bruiser, and we find out that He's paying him. First of all, how do the two guys guarding outside the door not hear Clooney getting his ass kicked? Or, hear, or even the conversation, they right? They hear all of the punches that Bruiser is faking, but they don't hear the conversation about how's your wife. And yeah, well, maybe well, maybe they, they went out for a like smoke. It is Vegas. In the movies, yeah. Smoking They're all a taking a coffee yeah. break or something. That's right. So while this is going on. We have a montage now. As the as it begins, right? Because Clooney has to get out. Linus has the codes. Saul is in the vault area with the his jewels. Basher is set. Clooney and Damon put their little James Bond thingamadoodles in the tower, and they put Yen into the into the uh, right. He's already in the vault. Oh, I have a question, actually. Fire away. Okay, so the little explosives that they use, they have like those little black things. They look like little black like diamonds or emeralds. Uh-huh. And then Yen sticks like the explosive to those. Where did he get those explosives? Because there were only the four black things in the briefcase. Uh, in his trousers? You just had it with him? Yeah. And what I liked about it is they blow the door, right? But they don't have to tell us or explain to us how they got it open. During the power outage after Basher, you know, sets off the pinch, 
what do you think about the fact when the power comes back on, the casino is just in a riot after 30 seconds of people grabbing chips and grabbing money? Oh, I think it's 100% that's the way that happens. You think that would have yeah. happened? I don't I don't know if the boxers would have gone after each other. Yeah, that was pretty unprofessional. They're, they're, uh, they're right. They're supposed to be professional. But everything else, I could totally do it. Yeah. Or I could totally see it happening. Would you have grabbed a few chips? You know, I ask myself that question every time uh, I watch this movie, and I still cannot confirm nor deny. I also just love this scene. I think uh, one of the dealers just gets fully decked in the face yeah. by one of the casino patrons. The guy's yeah. grabbing the chips. When the emergency people show up for Saul, and it's the brothers. Dude, you should have run. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Breathe, man. Breathe. Pitt's playing this great doctor. You know the wig he wore was the prototype for the Austin Powers wig? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. The, the plan is in full motion. They're all set. They cut the power. They're doing their thing. And then... Um, what do you think of Yen uh, almost getting exploded all over batteries? Oh, I saw it coming a mile away. Uh, that's why they set up the hand thing in the in the door, right, where he mm-hmm. gets his hand thing. Mm-hmm. And then when he's... Are you telling me he needed that much gauze for his broken hand? Well, my thought was, and Ken, you brought this up earlier, that Danny has thought of everything he's prepared for everything except he didn't check the batteries in the detonator oh well you lose focus in this game for one moment and someone gets hurt yeah. you don't hear yen complaining rusty calls benedict on a cell phone danny dropped in tess's coat earlier and tells him that unless he lets them have half of the money in the vault they will blow it up benedict sees video footage confirming rusty's claim Benedict complies, having his bodyguards take the loaded duffel bags to a waiting van driven by remote control. Benedict has his men follow the van while he calls in a SWAT team to try to secure the vault. The SWAT team's arrival causes a shootout that sets off explosives and incinerates the remaining cash. After affirming the premises otherwise secure, the SWAT team collects their gear and departs. As Benedict arrives to examine the ruined vault himself, his men stop the van and finds the bags were loaded with flyers for prostitutes. Benedict studies the video footage and realizes that the flooring in the vault on the video lacks the Bellagio logo, which had been added only recently to the vault. It is shown that Danny's team used their practice vault to create fake footage to fool Benedict. Furthermore, They themselves were the SWAT team and used their gear bags to take all of the money from the vault right under Benedict's nose. I love this phone call. Totally. Who the hell is this? The guy who's robbing you. I mean, he's just so cool. Well, here's my question. Have you ever been to the Bellagio? Yes, many times. No, never. How big is the Bellagio? Well, where they were filming probably wasn't the Bellagio. They were. They actually filmed the Bellagio. Some of it. In fact... Bellagio was so nice, they not only let them film throughout the whole casino, which normally you don't get to film anything in casinos, they let them tap into the security and actually use security footage. You know why they did that? Uh, Because the owner at the time was a friend of the director? Not the director. The producer, Jerry Weintraub. The producer. Who's been around forever, and he has connections in Vegas, so he's that guy. Well, my question was really... Tess leaves Benedict here and immediately finds Rusty quickly in the casino. You, you have to throw... Uh, uh, I understand what you're saying. I've been in many casinos, and they are not small. Mm-hmm. I get it. And crowded. and Absolutely. And how does she find him so quick? Eh, we just got to go with it. Okay. <laughs> 
I like how Rusty, you know, he says, uh, you know, where where are you at or where are you sleeping? I'm staying in your hotel. Of course I'm in your hotel. I got two words for you. Mini bar. <laughs> That's what I love, too, about Danny and Rusty's characters is I feel like they're so well calculated that even if the villains think that they're kind of getting the better of them, it's like, yeah, I know. Like, this whole thing was elaborately planned so that it would be very obvious by the time we reveal ourselves to you. It's like, no shit, I'm in the slots. That's the whole point. Right. Yeah. Rusty tells him what's going to happen, and Benedict complies. And I think this I think this is my favorite uh, Terry Benedict speech, because uh, you're right. He's not a good guy, and you're not supposed to like him, whatever. But I like when he says, run and hide. And he gives him that whole thing. If you get picked up, I'm going to be very disappointed because I want my people to find you first. If if you should get picked up buying a $100,000 sports car in Newport Beach, I'm going to be supremely disappointed. Do you know what that's in reference to? Uh, Something in Scarface? No. uh, Steve Wynn's daughter was kidnapped at one time. And they caught the kidnappers after they paid them off. They caught the kidnappers buying a very expensive car with cash. And so finally the audience gets the reveal about what really went down. And they go into, you know, good detail. It turns out that uh, when they called the SWAT team, that uh, Livingston intercepted the call, and then they all dressed up in the SWAT uniforms and went down. And that's how they got all the cash out. What they sent up first was the decoy. So... Um, a bait and switch. Yeah, they carried it out in their gear. Yeah. What do you think of the remote-controlled van <laughs> and the way that the guy's <laughs> driving it? Casey Affleck sitting in the uh, driver's seat. Wait, I want to do with something. With Ruben. Oops. Oop. Oh, 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 you didn't do it. Oh, you want to get it? Oh, oops. Enough monkey business. Fucking Ruben. So good. So I just found out recently that the U.S. Treasury has $1 million at 22 pounds. If that's the case... You multiply 22 pounds by 160, that's over 3,000 pounds. If it's over 3,000 pounds and you got 11 guys, well, everybody's having to carry out 300 pounds. That's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. And I don't think it'd fit into those bags. So it's a little like, oh, I kind of wish I didn't know that. Maybe. Well, there you go for looking it up, ding dong. Well, here's an idea. Maybe they took the helium from the balloons that they had earlier and put them in the bags yes. to help lift them. Yes, that's exactly what happened. The airtight bags. I am so glad you guys are here to get us through this. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. See what the fuck I have to live with? And so... Um, Terry, he's got to go see Danny now. That's right, because uh, it, it all just went off right underneath Benedict's nose and... He, he realizes, oh, I still got Danny. And speaking of walking around, can you imagine walking around the, the back workings of a casino like that? Ugh, it's just as fucking big. Benedict goes to see that Danny has seemingly been locked up in the storeroom throughout the heist and thus innocent of any involvement. As Tess watches via closed-circuit television, Danny tricks Benedict into saying that he would give her up in exchange for the money. Benedict, dissatisfied with Danny's plan to get the money back, orders his men to escort Danny off the premises and inform the police that he is violating his parole by being in Las Vegas. Tess leaves Benedict and exits the hotel just in time to see Danny arrested. The rest of the team bask in the victory in front of the fountains of the Bellagio, silently going their separate ways one by one. 
When Danny is released after serving time for his parole violation, he is met by Rusty and Tess. They drive off, closely followed by Benedict's bodyguards, whose presence was noted by Rusty as he and Danny approached Rusty's car. Roll credits. So now Benedict has to go talk to Danny. And (laughs) I love what Danny tells him. You know, after he gets him to give up Tess, blah, blah, blah. I mean, here's his whole plan to win Tess back. And it fucking worked, right? But I love how he says, uh, I know this guy. (laughs) Such a good line. And when Andy Garcia repeats it back to him, the amount of can't believe you just wasted my fucking time with this comes across so great. It was a little pet peeve that Danny has zero blood or no fat lip. His face looks just beautiful. Well, he is George Clooney. Well, one thing about the casinos, from what I've heard about mobsters and gangsters and everything in Vegas, is you never leave a mark. So they probably were a lot of body blows. I thought it was really interesting. You know, when he first comes in, you know, did you do this? Did you do this? You don't know what I'm talking about. He goes leave and he goes, what, Benedict, did you get robbed? It was all part of his plan. I love the just boom. I think he could have been more believable. You think so? Danny, yeah. The fact that he was like, Benedict, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I feel like he could have been a little bit more defensive. Don't you ever say an unkind word about George Clooney ever again. Like, I'm just saying, if I was Terry Benedict, I would not be believing him. After Danny gets arrested and leaves, uh, then we then cut to the rest of the 10, and they're walking out of the warehouse. Yeah. Uh, And then they stand in front of the fountains. What did you guys think of this scene? Well, trivia. What piece of music is it that's playing? Claire de Lune. It is. Claire de Lune. I read somewhere that didn't the movie kind of start with that or wasn't that throughout the movie somewhere? I don't think so. I thought that some, I read somewhere that that song at the end was the bookend to it playing earlier in the movie. Uh, I don't recall that song being played before that moment. The first half of the movie is pretty jazzy. Yeah. It's definitely in the third movie. I know that for a fact, but what was the director's direction to the 10 actors? Brad Pitt, you leave first. Carl Reiner, you leave last. Do you know why Carl Reiner got to go last? I felt like it was kind of a poetic ending. He came out of retirement for this job, and this was going to be his last job, supposedly. Yeah, and that's... His last big like money heist end his career. He's the old-timer, right? He was the one that everyone paid respect to, even Elliot Gould, mm-hmm. right? So that's why uh, he leaves last. But then, you know, they all just kind of left how naturally it felt or whatever after Brad Pitt leaves. I just thought it was a really pretty way to end it. No, no dialogue. I love it too. I think the music choice being Claire de Lune is also really intentional and I really like it. It's like a very, like I said, like calm ending. It kind of is just showing that everything is working out and it makes me want to cry. It's like one of those classical pieces that just makes me so happy that everything worked out. I'm like so relieved and everything is just kind of like whoosh. Yeah. Like I'm ready for like that emotional release. For sure. So that gets us to the prison. Did you notice what was going on with Rusty while he's waiting for Danny Ocean to get out of jail? Well, besides eating, of course, what was that? The fact that uh, he finally finished eating, in fact, had heartburn and threw the sandwich away. <laughs> I never noticed that. Uh, <laughs> I love the two lines. Oh, right? so good. I hope you were the groom. Ted Nugent calls. He wants his shirt back. 
The hope you were the groom was ad libbed by Steven Soderbergh. Hmm. He told Clooney to say that. No, he told Pitt to say that. Told Pitt to say that. Yeah, yeah. And then Clooney comes up with the. And doesn't he say some comment like, you know, thirteen million, and you can't even get a nice car? And I spent it all on the. Shirt. I blew it all on the suit. <laughs> I stopped and picked up some of your. Personal, uh, personal belongings. Yeah. Which goes Which, right back to Objectifying Ivy. again. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I have a couple of uh, trivia questions for you guys. In what year did the first casino in Las Vegas receive its gambling license? 1954. 1956. You got a guess, Ivy? Yeah, I think it's earlier than that. I want to say like 1919. She is a lot closer than both of you. 1931. On average... How many weddings are performed in Las Vegas each day? 500. Uh, I don't know. I'll go ahead and say 200. Ivy? 30. 315 weddings a day. Damn. So I love how the whole team comes together uh, to make this crew. I can only think of like another movie where a team comes together in such a great, I don't know, what do you call it? A fellowship? Don't say it. Oh, fuck. And now it's time for John's... Moment. Okay, so this is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So, okay, off the top of my head, I'd say we're looking at an Aragorn... A Frodo, a Bilbo Baggins, a Marion Pippin, a Theoden, a Legolas, not to mention a Gimli and the biggest Gandalf ever. Danny Ocean is Aragorn. He's the leader of the group. He's also the one on a journey to pull off the big heist. So as the leader of the group, that makes him kind of the king. As a burglar, I'd also say he's a bit of Bilbo but also a bit of Frodo, since really it all circles around to his journey that he set in motion. This makes Tess his Arwen, although really she's more of just a side story in Ocean's Eleven. Legolas is Rusty Ryan. He's the closest friend slash companion that Danny has, as well as the one that has his back. So also that makes him a Sam to Danny's Frodo. Gimli is Basher Tar. Gruff, grumpy, always complaining, but definitely comes through in a pinch. Get it? A pinch? Merry and Pippin, that would be Turk and Virgil Malloy. Mainly in the movie, for a bit of comic relief, they also come through with definitely when needed. Saul Bloom, he would be Theoden. He takes his part very seriously, and the rest of the team and theme slash cast treats him with a bit of reverence. Like Theoden, Early on, they have to pull him out of his slumber of retirement and get him back into the action. Gandalf, well, I chose Reuben for that. He's an older character with just enough wisdom to guide our various characters forward, like telling Linus, get in there. Sauron, I'm going to go with Terry Benedict on that one. While you might think he's more of a Sauron, he actually worships a higher master, money, greed, and pride. So that would make Sauron a bit of pride. 
he that's what is kind of has the corruption on almost you know most of our characters in this is that they take so much pride and danny kind of has a pride and ego so when it comes down to it and you're looking at what the precious and the one ring is in oceans 11 i'd say it's that pride and that greed that kind of drives everyone the majority of the people on the heist are doing it for greed it's the pursuit of taking what others have. For Danny, it's not only taking Benedict's money, but getting Tess away from him. For the team, it's just about pulling off the heist. None of them would be there if it wasn't for the payoff in the end. So there you have it. That's my comparison between Ocean's Eleven and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. I like the intro about how you uh, com- had a similar comparison that we had from Ocean's Eleven. I thought that was clever. I also I also thought that the uh, Aragorn for George Clooney's character, Danny Ocean, I, I like that. And then uh, the Malloy brothers, Merry and Pippin, that's a good fit as well. I think probably uh, C+. Plus. I like the Malloy twins as Merry and Pippin. That, that, that resonates. Uh, Danny is Aragorn just because he's so cool, but he is also Frodo. Um, I don't know if I would have put Rusty as Legolas. He's definitely a Sam, mm -hmm. so you know what I mean? I would have maybe put Linus as Legolas, but that's just me. I'm going to give you a C+. I say A+. Oh, for fuck's sake. Because I've only seen one and a half of the Lord of the Rings movies, but it sounded intelligent. You Your are, confidence was off the charts. Oh my god, don't encourage him. And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I think I'm ready to rate this flick. John, you want to rate this flick? I could be talked into it. Uh, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. When somebody says, do you want to watch Ocean's Eleven? Fuck yeah. A one fuck movie is, what the fuck was that? Besides a waste of my time. And what's a zero? Oh, for shit's sake. What the hell? Damn you for making me watch that. I want one hour and 56 minutes of my life back. All right. Uh, Which one of you three would like to go first? Me. Oh, by all means, Ivy, please. I would rate this movie five out of five bucks because <laughs> um, I think it's a quality watch. If I were to be scrolling along on the channels, on the TV, or on a streaming service, I would stop and watch this movie. Like, no matter where it's at, if someone wanted to put this movie on, I would be watching it full attention, would not be distracted. Um, but at the same time, I'd also have it playing on in the background. Fun fact, when I got my wisdom teeth out, um, I was not sedated, and I just had the movie playing in my AirPods as they ripped my teeth out of my mouth. Okay. Was that it? Yes. Is that the end of your story? (laughs) Yes, that's how much I love this movie. You love this movie so much that you gave it five fucks, which means it is cinematic gold. Yes. All right, who wants to go next? I'll go. All right, hit me. Ocean's Eleven is a very, very fun watch, and I really appreciate the the cadence that the movie has because it really moves, and I think that the music just 
you know, just pops, you know, just bops me right along. And I really appreciated the cast. Matt Damon, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Brad Pitt. These are movie stars. This is a movie star movie. And I thought that it was so well written. And the what really comes across for me in the movie is it's really more about characters. We have the development of all of these characters, I think, done in a very good way. More so, I'm you know, the plot of the movie isn't necessarily, I think, the most enjoyable aspect. It's fun to watch, but it's the character development that I really appreciate and enjoy. And watching the, you know, the whole bit between Danny and and uh, Rusty, how they interact with each other, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes they answer by finishing each other's sentences. Sometimes they don't have to say anything and it's only done with a look. When we have them in the beginning and they first meet and they hustle those kids, they totally knew what they were doing, at least in my opinion. And I found that I can easily watch this movie pretty much any time because it has so many fun little moments and the montages, they move so well. And I just don't have anything bad to say about the movie. It's a solid 4.5 fuck movie for me. 4.5 fucks from the professor. Would you like me to go next? Oh, sure. Heist movies have never been my favorite genre of movie. If you can't tell from some of my comments earlier. To be honest, they feel a little bit lazy to me. They all seem to follow a similar formula. So you already know what to expect. You just create an impossible task that only this team can pull you know, can pull it off, brought together by some you know mystical guy who can basically do anything and then you spend most of the movie preparing things look like they're going to go bad but then we find out through flashbacks that the team was always conveniently one step ahead there are also a lot of fake outs and every time it seems like our heroes are caught oh look someone else is conveniently on the payroll if you're a fan of Rick and Morty, there's an episode called One Crew Over the Crew Cruise Morty, which came out uh, on season four. It goes into a much better explanation of the issues with crew and heist stories. Now, you might be thinking all movies are just planned out and follow a formula that the writers just kind of write. And I guess... The only way I can explain it is, is that most other movies move forward with their story and use flashbacks to let us revisit some of the character development details in the past. Heist movies tend to be dependent on flashbacks for crucial bits of information that makes the movie work. Now, the only other thing that really bugs me about this movie is the relationship between Danny and Tess. She divorced him because he was a liar and a thief. The fact does not that fact does not change throughout the movie. Yet at the end, because she finds out Benedict is a dick, she chooses to go back to, da to Danny. Like, she can't do better than either of them. Now, while I typically don't appreciate the whole idea of flashback fixes in movies, Ocean's Eleven does a great job of keeping you wondering until the big reveal. Going back and re-watching the movie, you can detect some of the elements of the flashbacks in present time through voices and through actions. So really, my complaint about typical crew and heist movies, you don't see that as much 
in Ocean's Eleven because you can really detect that the writers thought it out. They aren't just using the idea of a flashback to fix an issue. It was all planned ahead of time. So really, even though I'm not a fan of that type of movie, I really did enjoy Ocean's Eleven. I liked the chemistry between the actors. I loved the humor and the flow of the story really worked for me. I thought the casting was great. The movie does keep you entertained. I appreciate that they filmed in actual casinos and with so many big names and the pace was just perfect. I also appreciate that there's a lot of story buildup before the actual heist. It's the part, that's the part of the movie, the buildup that I enjoyed most. For me, you, once you take the mystery out of how they do it type of movie, rewatchability isn't that great. But for anyone who loves this type of movie or is a fan of these actors, I would highly recommend this as being one of the best crew heist movies to come along. So for those reasons, I'm giving Ocean's Eleven 3.75 fucks. It's not my favorite genre of movie, but putting my opinion aside, it's a very well done movie and actually a fun ride. All right, my turn. Ocean's Eleven was, at the time, one of the funnest movies to come out. And to this day, even rewatching it as many times as I had, it's still fun. It still makes me smile. Everything that Steven Soderbergh did, he did fantastically. The way he continually moves the camera to move the story along, it's effortless. Add that with the brilliance of the editing and the soundtrack. The movie from start to finish just goes, and that's my kind of movie. Uh, Is it perfect? No. Are there a lot of plot holes? Sure. And a lot of the times when you watch a movie and if the plot hole takes you out of it, I mean, you know, that kind of ruins the movie for you. But with Ocean's Eleven, even 12 and 13, I'm having so much fun that I don't fucking care. So this is one of those instances where the entertainment value and how I'm going through in this movie and what it's making me feel trumps everything else, right? The story is fine. Uh, It has a beginning, middle, and an end, and I can follow it all the way. I'm an optimist, so I like to think that uh, Clooney did this all for love. And Julia Roberts did deep down inside know that she did love him. We don't know all of the circumstances. We don't know how it all played out, but I believe in happy endings and I hope that they had a happy ending. The chemistry between the cast was just pure magic. And I challenge you to go find another heist team up movie that has this much chemistry and this much love in it. You know, the three of us would go, Oh, the Avengers movies. Sure. Absolutely. But what came first? I think that that goes a long way. I had a hard time with the rating that I was going to give it. Um, It did definitely toy up there with uh, the five fucks. That's for, you know what? Fuck it. I'm giving Ocean's Eleven five fucks. Yeah. Nice. Bitching. Nice. Anytime, anywhere I can watch it. And so you're saying it's gold. Yes. Cinematic gold. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well-rounded movie. All right, with five fucks from me, four and a half fucks from the professor, and 3.75 fucks from the comic book guy, that gives Ocean's Eleven an average of 4.4 fucks, which puts it by itself in the number six spot. 
which means that it is slightly worse than Snatch, John Wick 3, Black Panther, and yet slightly better than Shang-Chi, The Crow, and The Road Warrior. That is going to wrap it up for this episode. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check our website. Hey, speaking of which, John, where can they find us? Well, as always, they can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post all of our podcasts, show notes, movie trivia, teasers for our next podcast, and anything else I can seem to squeeze into that site. You can also find us at anywhere uh, that hosts podcasts and all of social media. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to say a very special thank you to our guest, Ivy. We really appreciate you submitting Ocean's Eleven, and we appreciate you coming on and talking about it with us. Did you have a good time? Yes, I had a great time. It's been really fun discussing with you all. I listen to you all the time, so it's nice to be behind the microphone for a change. Well, we do appreciate it, and I guess... You're you coming could, back, right? You can come back whenever you when want. When I submit my next movie. <laughs> Why not? Let's do Ocean's 12. Oh no, wait. Nice oh, no, 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 wait, 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 hang on. Yeah, no, yeah, because uh, Brad Pitt does put his arm on Catherine Zeta Jones' shoulder. Oh, right. And she I probably have, didn't like that. So you're right. You shouldn't do that. But also relevant to how they treat women in that movie, also. If you need me to be the relevant female guest who's going to call out the misogyny in movies, you got me. <laughs> how, Ivy, how do you feel about musicals? I like musicals. She's welcome back. Submit Rock of Ages. Okay, I haven't seen it. I could submit School of Rock. That's a good one, too. Oh, we love School of Rock, huh, Professor? Or Hairspray or Newsies. And I want to thank everyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. Be sure to pass this along, and if you keep listening to them, we'll keep recording them. So, for Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. I'm Ken. And I'm Ivy. And remember, kids, it's okay to steal as long as you don't lie about it. Ask him how he feels. Truth hurts, right? I don't know know what you're talking about. You're projecting. Ask Ken how he feels. (laughs) Arguing your arch nemesis was an eight-year-old in computer class. (laughs) You know what's funny about that, Ivy? His arch enemy today is still an eight-year-old in computer (laughs) class. You tossers. You had one job. Okay, we're going to get one more. Joining us tonight are... Uh, joining us tonight, our, uh, her name's Ivy. Yeah. Thanks dickhead. But the plan consists of simultaneously, simultaneously, simultaneously. The plan consists of simultaneous, simultaneously. You got it. (laughs) I'm enjoying this. Keep going. Don't fucking look at me. What do I keep telling you? Simul. The, the plan contest, (laughs) contest. You guys fucking suck. Not I mean, too. it's not like, you know, Katie's going to do things. Uh, excuse me. get on the mic. <laughs> it's going to be a long night, Don. <laughs> I was going to say something, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. Uh, we don't believe in love anyway. So. Uh, come well, no. Common sense got the, the better of me on that one. <laughs> well, you've already said but she's welcome submit, back. Submit Age of Rock. Rock of Ages. Sorry, For fuck's sake, if we're going to do the movie, you better get the fucking name right. Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, I'd love to do that one. Of course you would. What are you you like that movie. You well, love that movie. What are you, fucking 11? All right, fuck off. Good night.